0: Hey, this is Robbie Kelman-Baxter, the author of The Membership Economy, and you're listening to my quest for the best.
1: Chances are that you've watched a movie online through Netflix or Amazon Prime. Netflix is an $11 billion company alone and has been at the vanguard of the rise of the membership economy. But what is the membership economy from a small business perspective? Until you understand it from the provider side as well as the consumer side, it's hard to navigate effectively. Have you thought about how your business can participate by repackaging the value you offer to your best customers? That's exactly what Robbie Baxter, author of The Membership Economy, shares in this episode. We break down the business models of Amazon and Tony Robbins to give you the details and insights to apply to your business in the membership economy. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of my Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Robbie Baxter. Robbie founded Peninsula Strategies, a management consulting firm. Before starting Peninsula Strategies in 2001, Robbie served as New York City Urban Fellow, a consultant at Booz Hamilton, and a Silicon Valley product marketer. As a public speaker, she has presented to thousands of people in corporations, associations, and universities. She earned her undergraduate degree from Harvard College and an MBA from Stanford Graduate School of Business. Robbie's here to discuss ideas for small business owners from her book, The Membership Economy, Find Your Super Users, Master the Forever Transaction, and Build Recurring Revenue. Welcome, Robbie.
0: Thanks for having me, Bill.
1: It's a pleasure. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you?
0: My dad influenced and inspired me um, because he was such an entrepreneur himself. Um, he, <laughs> if you met him, you'd say he's a very he's a lawyer. He's a very conservative person, very slow to make decisions. But he made a couple of doozies when I was growing up. Um, one of which was when I was four and my sister was one, and my mom was not working and they had no safety net. They decided to move from New York to California to start a law firm. And um, he and three of his friends, all in their 20s, um, all with small children, moved to a place where three out of the four of them had never even been, uh, Palo Alto, California, and they started a law firm. Um, and the law firm ended up being successful. But when I look back on that, um, as it, when I looked back on it as a young adult, and certainly when I look back on it now, um, I realized how gutsy that was and how he kind of invented his future. And then the second thing that he did that has been a real inspiration for me even now is um, after about 25 years of being at that law firm, he retired from the law firm and started a venture capital investment firm. Again, something he'd never, you know, he'd, he'd been on the legal side, but he'd never been a professional investor, but he hustled, found a great team. Um, and, they, and they built that, you know, and he was working there, you know, into, into his, uh, you know, 70th year so um for me that's that's a lot of inspiration, and just the idea that you can have multiple careers, the idea that you can invent your own future um the idea that um that things are possible is is something that's really always always inspired me and and then as a as a person, he's literally inspired me by you know believing in me and encouraging me and supporting me in in whatever I do, which as a kid, I totally thought was like that's what parents do they just tell you you're great and that you can do anything but i realized um what a what a tremendous and 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 rare gift that was to have um to have parents that really believed in me um all along
1: that's fabulous and what a what a wealth of inspiration from his own actions not just his words but his actions where he's actually taking risks and working hard to make his dreams come through
0: yeah definitely
1: So when you launched your own firm, Pencil Strategies, what made you decide to start your firm and how did you go about launching it to get your first clients?
0: Well, Bill, I was laid off while I was on maternity leave with my second child. And I said, (laughs) I am never going to be dependent on somebody else for my livelihood and more importantly, for my career. And I said, I'm going to start my own firm. I'm going to figure this out. And back to my dad, you know, if he can do it, I can figure this out. Um, and, and I had more of a safety net, you know, with a, a working husband and supportive family. Um, and I said, I'm going I'm to just give this a try. Um, I started small. I started modestly. I dipped my toe in as opposed to diving in. And I said, if I can't, let's see if I can make a living, if I can earn money uh, as a consultant doing work that I'm skilled in. So I didn't have a very high bar. I wasn't saying I want to be an expert in membership and that's all I'm going to do. I said, if they want someone for strategy, if they want someone for marketing, whatever they need, as long as it's like, I'm not going to do dog walking, um, even if they'll pay me, but I needed to be paid at a certain amount. I think it was like the camera was $100 an hour, or $150 an hour, and then it was um, for doing work that's in my professional wheelhouse. And, you know, that worked. I was able to get a couple of projects um, right away, and that gave me the content, confidence to build a website and a business card and to start talking about it like it was a, like it was a real firm. Um, and then, over time, I got more focused and really developed a brand and so on. but but you know in those in those early months, I really was just dipping my toe in to see if I could make a living um, working for myself.
1: One of your early clients I read in the book was Netflix. Um, How did that come about as one of your early clients, and what were you able to help them with? Because obviously it had a great influence on the trajectory of your career.
0: Yeah, it really did. So uh, I think Netflix is about like the, maybe the fifth or sixth client that I, that I had. They came to me through word of mouth. Uh, I had a business school classmate who uh, was working there, uh, who recommended me. Um, I wasn't going to be working for her, but I was working for one of her colleagues. And um, I came in originally for a little six week project uh, working on acquisition. So I was with the acquisitions team. So if you think about any kind of subscription business, Um, You know, in most cases, there are people who focus on acquiring new customers and they're looking for different partnerships, different channels, different um, marketing messages that work to get people to sign up for the free trial. And they had a backlog of people who would inquire and said, hey, we'd be interested in doing something with you. And so Netflix said, hey, can you just help us go through this backlog, Um, which was a pretty finite project. Uh, and then we we connected really well, so I ended up doing a lot of different things with them over a about a two year period, all in marketing and you know that was just once once I started working with them, we saw a lot of different things that i could that I could do with them. yeah, it was a very big driver in the direction of my business because I fell in love with their business model while I was working there, and I fell in love with the very disciplined, very analytically rigorous approach they used to build what I've come to call a membership economy business.
1: Before we go on, I just want to highlight what you said there, Robbie, because every business owner and business leader listening needs to reflect on how simple it is that new business occurs and where important leads can come from. Robbie just shared that she got her lead from a friend who she went to business school with. She was brought in on something that was not directly associated with where she wanted to go, but it was a, a stepping stone and it helped build a relationship. Those are important reminders as we go forward and, and build our businesses of how important it is to stay connected with people because you never know where those opportunities lead. So you say you fell in love with their business model. What aspect of their business model was exciting to you?
0: So I loved the way they focused on solving one problem for their audience. Um, professionally created video content delivered with cost certainty in the most efficient way possible. And they didn't do other things. And it, it sounds so obvious, but it's so easy. And I think this is true for, for any business person to get distracted by shiny pennies, right? Oh, that's I could do that too. Oh, we could also do video games. We could do video games three out of a time. Oh, we could advertise and make a little more money. Oh, you know, there were so many possibilities that people put forward to netflix um, to offer short-term opportunities and they were very disciplined about staying focused on doing this one thing really well which which kept them busy because of course they went to you know in the most efficient way possible used to be three dvds out at a time and then it became streaming Um, now we can stream and we can download onto our mobile devices so they keep looking at new ways to uh to access it and then You know, professionally created video content used to be created by others, and now it's actually created by Netflix. Netflix is actually, um, you know, turned into kind of a powerhouse for original content. So they change how they do it, but what they do has not changed um, in the, you know, now it's been 15 years since since I first worked with them.
1: And it's so clear how they stayed true to that mission that we could look at from the outside and see, but working upon it from the inside you talk about the discipline of staying true to that one mission. It's something that everyone in business needs to focus on in order to maximize their own model. Let's get into what the elements are of the membership economy, Robbie. How do you recognize it? How do you define what makes the membership economy function so that we could work with those those pillars?
0: Yeah. So if you're out there and you're thinking, is membership economy something for me? What I would say is if you depend on having relationships with your customers to be successful, then this is relevant to you. If you uh, have a geographic advantage, like you are the last gas station before the 200 mile highway, or you know you have a patent advantage so no one can compete with you, um, or you sell your products um, at a commodities exchange, you can turn this off right now. But if you care about the relationships you're building with your customers, then the membership economy is something worth considering because it's all about taking a long-term focus on your members' needs as a guide for building your business. And and Bill, that's really different than a product-centric approach, which is very much about, you know, I've created this course, I've created this widget, and I'm going to get people to buy it. Um, membership economy is very much about people have this long-term objective. Like, for example, with LinkedIn, the long-term objective is for people to to thrive in their careers, right? And they happen to have a place where you can post job listings and they happen to have a place where you can put up your own resume and they happen to have, you know, a, a catalog of thousands of educational professional development courses. But those products are not as important. No one product is as important As the ongoing relationship that they have with the people they serve, LinkedIn has dozens and dozens of features um, and all kinds of benefits. And probably if you grabbed three people who all love LinkedIn, they probably use it in very different ways. But all of us use it to advance our careers. So, yeah, there's, and, and so, yeah, some of us use it for the community, some of us use it to find a job, some of us use it to find an employee. Some of us use it for our own professional development, Um, but everything they layer in is about helping somebody thrive over the journey of their career.
1: And another thing that I'll I'll highlight, because LinkedIn is such a good example of this, are the four criteria for a a membership economy relationship that you talk about in the book. One is that you make the shift from ownership of some uh, asset to access to it. And as LinkedIn members, for example, we have access to this huge database of other potential clients and customers and vendors and and partners for new things. Second point is that they move from one-time payment to recurring payments. Now, we'll get to that in just a minute because we want to talk about the freemium model. Third is that they go from anonymous to known transactions. In the membership economy, it's important that people know each other to build relationships. And as you pointed out earlier, there's value in introducing your customers to each other, which is what LinkedIn does. And then it becomes not one way, but a community-based di- um, dialogue and community-based um, conversation. Those are all the pieces. Would you add anything else to what LinkedIn, Netflix, Amazon, other really great archetypes of the membership economy are doing well to help build that economy and help it thrive?
0: I think. I think that these, I mean, there's, there's a lot of tactics that they, that they can use beyond this, but I think that the four, the four points you just described so well are really kind of like the, the palette for painting a new business model. So you can take what like, let's say that you own a nail salon. You can say ownership to access. Well, I don't want to get, I don't want to have nail polish. First of all, I don't want to buy nail polish. Second of all, I don't want to have an anonymous transaction. I come in, I get my nails done and I leave. I want my nails to always look good. That's why I go to a nail salon, right? Some people go because they enjoy the um, the experience of being taken care of, and uh, and it's kind of a luxury, like kind of like getting a massage or something. But for most people, it's it's about having your nails look good. And frankly, we'd all like to just take a pill and have our nails always look good. So focusing on you know, access to always having your nails look good instead of getting a manicure. Um, making it more of a community experience, like if everybody goes at the same time, that makes it more mm-hmm. fun and makes it more valuable. Um, if it's your work colleagues, then, you know, so much the better. Maybe you're even building contacts while you're having your nails look good for your professional work. So there's a lot of ways to strengthen your model by applying, you know, ownership over access, you know, access over ownership, um, relationship over, you know, anonymous transactions. You know, maybe you're paying on a subscription. You have unlimited access to come into the nail salon whenever your nails break, rather than paying one time, one big lump sum to get a manicure. And then, you know, thinking about is there a way to to incorporate some kind of community and human connection into our offer? Um, that's often not the reason that someone joins, but it's often the reason that someone stays.
1: Ah, really good point. I love that because. That's part of why business owners listening to this will want to give serious thought to the membership economy principles and the examples that are in the book, or to come to one of your presentations that are given that you give to corporations privately, or even teach, I think on LinkedIn is if that's true. By listening to and understanding these principles, there are companies out there that may have some of these principles in effect now, but you can enhance them and do it more deliberately.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like um, if you want, give me an example of someone, of a a, a typical listener, and we can kind of walk through what they might be able to do.
1: So say someone's doing a social media marketing agency and the way that their business model works is they, they look for large projects where they can help a company transform what it is that they're doing and have more of a consistent presence in social media.
0: Okay, so the first thing is, um, going from transactional to relational, a lot of times um, agencies will start by saying, "We want to sell the big project. We want to sell the transformation project," and that's great. You can often make a, you know a good amount of money and do some really meaningful work. But but what the customer wants is they want to be successful at reaching their target audience on an ongoing basis. They want to keep getting better at that, and they want to drive more business. So what would it look like? You take a step back and say, what would it look like if we truly solved the problem that our, that our customers came to us for? Well, the problem is, like you said, they have this feeling that they should be using social media in a different way to get more value and that the more value for them is more customers and more loyal customers. Well, what if you said, we're going to work with you forever on that. And it's a, it's a subscription instead. And you really looked at the points with your customers where they were having, where, where, here's, here's a good way to think about it. You look at your customers as if it was your sister or your cousin. And you say, if I were just doing this to help them, how would I structure the work? If I wanted to help them and I had unlimited resources, how would I structure the work? And that's where you start to see what membership looks like. You'd be like, well, I'd let them call me anytime when they had a problem. Um, well, I would, Check in on all of their different campaigns and kind of audit them about once a month to make sure that they're not going off the rails. Uh, well, I might put a person in at a larger company to continually educate the entire marketing team on what's new. Uh, maybe we'd come in and do little lessons or or seminars to make sure that everybody was current. Um, I'd introduce them to people like them at other companies so that they'd start to feel like they had a peer group. All of those things you can repackage. As a subscription offering, as a membership experience. And there's so much more value there than just the transactional, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna give you a social media strategy. So um, it, it's, it's how you look at the relationship. And like I said, I think one of the best little tactics is to say, what if the person I loved most or cared about most in the world were my customer? How would I structure the work? that person to give them the best value. Um, Another example is, uh, if you're a doctor, you know, many of us have a doctor in the family, or a close friend who's a doctor. And when we get sick, and we don't believe what our own doctor tells us, we call our friend the doctor and say, hey, I have this problem. What do you think? What would you do? Should I go see somebody else? Like all these questions. What if, what if every healthcare organization treated you like you were a relative? and really tried to give you the best advice and took your call on Saturday afternoon, right? It would be a totally different experience.
1: I have a a friend of mine who I I play tennis with and in his family, he has dentists. And Uh his father um, retired years ago and his sister recently retired. And now he's faced with um, never having gone to a dentist outside his family for the first time. So he's coming at it from the other side of it. He's going to be really disappointed that people don't treat him the way that his family treated him. (laughs) Is that right? I
0: love that. I love that because the way he's coming in, what he's going to expect, that's what dentists should be offering. In fact, there's a um, a really wonderful um, community for dentists. Um, run by Dr. Howard Ferran, and he has a, a, um, a podcast as well. And uh, it'd be interesting to have your friend on that show just because it, he would give such good insight as to what you really expect as a great experience. Um, having a dentist in the family, I think that's a great metaphor. Um, yeah, I love that.
1: And what you said is is really important because a lot of companies have given serious thought about how to add value. And it begins with looking at the customer journey and how to add value to it from the customer's perspective, not necessarily from the company's perspective. And what's always struck me as very interesting in in having those discussions is how often it doesn't require much more resource, but positioning it differently, structuring it differently, making it more available to their, their client base. And have you found that when, companies are making the, the shift to a membership economy offering. Maybe it doesn't become their whole business, but they start to offer something with it. That it They're often relieved that it doesn't cost as much or hurt as much um, to make that shift.
0: Yeah, once they've shifted, once the, what I would say is once they've shifted, it's often a much more profitable and easy, predictable business model. But the shift, is can be hard and daunting because, like, if you go back to your example of the the social media agency, social media marketing agency, and they're going to move away from just trying to sell these huge one time deals. There's that moment when you say, "Wow, now they're subscribing and they're paying less every month." Um, that's a little bit scary. Uh, there's kind of they call it, there's kind of a dip in revenue, but then it goes up, and then you have this recurring, you know, revenue which is which is so much better and also um, if you focus on knowing who your customers really are and serving them for the long term you you know your customers tell you what they want next so your product development cycle gets a lot easier Um, they stop looking for alternatives because they trust you so your revenue becomes more predictable and it's much easier when a when a bad prospect comes in the door to recognize that you shouldn't bend over backwards to try to serve them, which people do all the time, and instead you can say, you know, we're not really optimized. You know, if you don't want this kind of a subscription, if you're not looking for a long-term relationship, we're probably not the best agency for you. Um, that just saves you so much heartache. Um, you know, I think a lot of heartache uh, that 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 entrepreneurs face is that you pick the wrong customer. You take them because. Either you didn't vet them enough in the beginning or you're afraid of um, giving up the the revenue um, and you take on customers that you're not really suited to serve well. And so either they're disappointed or you're completely distracted because you're trying to, you know, serve a four course fancy dinner and your McDonald's and it's painful.
1: I think that's really interesting. And I want, want to emphasize what you just said about recognizing bad customers, who are bad fits for your current model or the model that you're looking to build. There are questions that companies need to ask. Just like there are qualifying questions when you belong to any membership, you know, country club or um, any other kind of membership that you think of, there's a qualifying part of that. Isn't there Robbie?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, you have to like, for all of you listening, you have to know who your best customer is. Um, and to be able to measure uh, what I would call customer goodness, uh, which is how likely are they to have a long-term, you know, a, a really good, you know, lifetime value? Um, how much are they, are they worth to you? Um, and if you don't know the answer to that, take a little time and and do a little analysis. It can be as simple as just saying who are our best customers and writing down a list of their names and then saying, what do they have in common? And why do we, you know, why do we consider them a best customer? And what, what do we notice about them? And how would we market to get more people like that? And then do the same exercise for who are our worst customers and why are they our worst? Is it because they're not profitable? Is it because they're not nice? Is it because even though we serve them well, they distract us and take us off course? Um, Once you know that, just knowing that information, it'll, You'll change almost everything about how you do your business to optimize around those best customers. And you'll immediately see both your revenue and your profitability go up. And you'll also start to feel some ease in the work you're doing because you know you know who you're working for and what you're doing for them.
1: That's a really important reminder. I, I want to shift gears for a moment because there are some people who are using the membership economy to build a brand personally. And we've, we've heard of people like... Tony Robbins, for instance, who is a a one-man force of nature, and also people like Peter Diamandis, who fewer people know of with Singularity University, but that you might be able to give us some insights into what individuals who have a lot of content to share, who have a lot of relationships to share, and help people solve problems in specific areas of their lives or businesses, how they can use membership economy principles in order to monetize those relationships or uh, that community.
0: Yeah. So if you're if you're a thought leader, if you have subject matter expertise like Diamandis, like Tony Robbins, um, you can start to build an offering that serves a particular group of people for their lifetime. So you look at Tony Robbins, which is all about peak. Per- he's all about peak performance, right? His whole thing was. He found models that were living, that were doing the thing that was important to him, whether that was around fitness, around earning money, around relationships, around, you know, you name it. He he watched them very carefully and asked a lot of questions, tried to understand why are you successful when so many people fail? And then he taught that, right? First he did it on himself and then he tried to teach it. And what's really interesting about what he did is he packaged it in many different ways. Um, to help people at all parts of the journey. So maybe at the beginning of the journey, you don't know him, you don't trust him, you're not really willing to commit a lot. So you read his book, right? Or you read his blog, or you listen to his podcast. And then over time, you might try an event. Um, And at the event, you might meet other people, and you might have a smaller group that meets um, with one of Tony's people. He has people now, um, even though the brand is built around his name. Uh, Then you might uh, get involved as a, as a teacher, as an instructor. So you kind of rise in the community. You start wanting to only hang out with people who are in the community because they're also seekers, right? So he has events for his seekers to continue to support one another um, and learn and grow. And the ones that are on the leading edge of that push him to create new content because they say, hey, we need a course in this, or we need your insights in that. And so you can see how this becomes a virtuous cycle where New content, new events are almost being created by the members as they push for what they need. And what I think is really smart about what he's done is, you know, peak performance is something that we want for our whole life. It's not like I would say, okay, I took the course in peak performance and now I'm good enough, right? I'm always going to want to be better. Um, Same thing with Peter Diamandis, who's really talking about exponential impact on the world, and you know, through science and the people that care about exponential impact, they're gonna to wanna to do this for their whole careers or their whole lives. So there's so much room both for sharing new discoveries, sharing new principles for how to learn and also for connecting people. So, you know, Bill, when I think about the people listening who are subject matter experts or maybe have subject matter expertise as a byproduct from their business, um, starting to create content and experiences for the people who want to learn what you know is a really great way to extend your impact and also generate, you know, in many cases, passive, passive income.
1: What are some of the keys for someone who's starting out, who's listening to this now and saying, I have you know worked in an industry for 20 plus years, and I know a lot of the ins and outs that would be valuable, especially for people who are starting out, especially for people who have half the experience. What would be some of the guidelines, you know, two or three guidelines that you'd offer to help them be successful sooner rather than later?
0: So this is um, somebody who's leading their career in a company who has deep subject matter expertise and wants to be uh, a subject matter expert or consultant or speaker. They need to get really clear on who they can serve, who wants that information. They need to be really honest with themselves and be sure that there is a true need. I think a lot of times people think that their expertise is needed, but maybe there's a lot of other people who do it already, and they're not perceived as differentiated enough. Uh, so, so talk to your target audience and say, is this something that you would need? Um, I think getting out there earlier rather than later, and just asking. So, if you think that you would be really great for somebody who's two years into their career, then go find five people who are two years into their career and talk to them. Friend, I would call them friendly. Like, you know, they could be your, you know your next door neighbor's daughter or, you know, someone that you know that used to work for you, but you ask them the questions. Um, so first you want to validate that there's a need and that there's a, a type of person who would really value this and be willing to pay for it. Um, and then you want to make sure that you're credible, that in other words, the content that you have really is as good as you think it is. And then once you have that, you want to start with the lowest hanging fruit, you want to say, what is something that I can do right now? If I have this big vision of what it could look like, what's one thing that I could do right now that I know will be successful and that will lead me on that path? Um, And I often do an exercise with my clients where I have them create that vision. This is what it would look like if it were running really well. You know, I would be the world leader on, you know, whatever it is. And I would have a community and I would have courses and I would have you know, i be traveling the world and all these things. And then you say, okay, what's the first step? What's one thing I can do right now to prove the pieces that I'm most nervous about, um, to demonstrate that it works and to start moving me toward that vision. And maybe you have three steps in mind and just start in um, with, with step one. For example, if you say I have this vision where there's going to be, um, Like, like maybe maybe Tony Robbins said, you know, someday I will be helping all the most powerful people in the world be at their peak every single day when they work, and I will help every person who's ever been through trauma be happy and successful and have better relationships, and the world will be a more beautiful place because I lived here, right? Maybe that's the vision. Step one is I'm going to write a book that codifies all of my knowledge, like a starting point for people. Uh, Step two is I'm going to do an annual conference for people who've read the book and want a little bit more. And step three is once I've had three or four conferences, I'm going to start having an alumni association uh, where people pay and they have access to, you know, teleconferences with me on a monthly basis. Right. And he doesn't know what else is going to happen between step three and Nirvana but it kind of gets you on the path. And that's what I would suggest to people who are just who are just starting out, get that big vision. Think about your first few steps that are gonna um, help you with learning and then also to, to have more leverage to go deeper.
1: Well, that's certainly true because getting on the path, taking action and bringing it out to the market is essential to see if what you think you have will actually be accepted by the market and it's worth paying for.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: What are the key components of your routine for daily success?
0: The key components for my success are, number one, I'm pretty disciplined about my time. Uh, That started when my kids were little and I only had childcare from nine to four. And so I had to get it all done before I picked up my kids. And once I picked them up, I couldn't do anything. So I maintained that discipline. Uh, A second thing is um, I always have some big goals that I'm working on, what I think of as sort of the important but not urgent, like Updating my website or uh, writing my next book or building new relationships. And then I have my reactive work, which is responding to client requests, uh, getting, getting work done for upcoming events, that kind of thing. And so being really clear on those things is helpful. And as a guide, for me, something that I think about all the time, I'm a, I'm a marketer. I grew up as a marketer. I always think about two things from a consulting perspective which is getting better at building my brand and getting better in the buyer's office. And those two things can really help me stay focused about how I'm spending my time. I think it's good to have something like that that kind of is simple to remember. And you're like, am I getting better in the buyer's office? Am I building my brand? If neither one of those is true, then what is the, what is the reason I'm, I'm spending my time on this? And that's always been a really helpful um, guide for me.
1: Love it what's uh what's one of your favorite ways to get unstuck do you have a tool or system you use for staying on track and productive
0: yeah so if i get stuck like just thinking about when i get stuck um it's sometimes it's because i'm stuck like a particular thing that i'm working on isn't like i'm not pushing through so i'll often Mm -hmm. give myself a break and say i'm like for let's say let's say i'm working on my book proposal And I just don't feel like what I'm writing is very good. And it's going really slowly. I might say, okay, I'm going to work on this tomorrow morning, or I'm going to work, give myself time on Saturday to work on this when I have nothing else to do. And that's that's kind of step one to give myself a break. And step two is, and I'm going to get all these other little things done. And then I come back to it. I always give myself, I'm a person who always starts projects with a lot of time so that I have that luxury of saying, it's not working now. I'll come back to it. So it's been, a, for me, that's been a way to be kind to myself. So, you know, being able to give myself a break and say, okay, Robbie, you don't have to work on your book proposal today. I can do that. I can be kind. I can be a nice boss because the book proposal is not due till next week. So I can do it tomorrow. Right. If I were, if it were, you know, the day before the book proposal due, I can't be so kind. I'm like, well, we're in a rush. we got to get it done now. So that's, that's been something mm-hmm. that's really been helpful about getting unstuck. The other thing that helps me to get unstuck, and I really encourage people to do this, is ask for help. Back to my book proposal. It was not getting done. I was not happy with it. Um, I have a friend who is a professional writer and editor. And I said, hey, I am not getting this done. I don't know why. It's important to me, and it's not getting done. I'm stuck. Can you help me? And she stepped in and helped me. and you know, sometimes you pay that person. Sometimes you, you know, your friend does it as a favor and you owe them one. Um, but asking for help is to help you get unstuck, I think is probably the, the easiest and most magical way to get unstuck that I would, I would encourage everybody to give, uh, give a try.
1: Fantastic. What's, what's an important habit, routine or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or
0: personal satisfaction? I hired an admin so I could stop doing a lot of things. And (laughs) that has been great. I've I've had uh, had admins before, um, but this one is just, you know, she's great at projects. And she is moving me through a whole bunch of things that have been piled up that I used to feel like I had to do. So that's something that's been that's been really great to stop to to say somebody else is going to do a lot of this project management for bigger, um, bigger undertakings that are important to my business.
1: And Robbie, what's the best advice you've ever received?
0: When I was in companies, the best advice I ever received was if your boss doesn't think you're a rock star, go work somewhere else. And I can go into that a lot more detail, but but at its heart, if you're going to work your tail off and your career really matters to you, and your boss thinks you're a B player, not an A player, it's just gonna be frustrating and demoralizing. Um, So it's worthwhile to to look around and see if there's another place you might be able to go. Um, I don't know that that's good advice for everybody, but for me, that was incredibly um, empowering and helpful. Um, I think as a consultant, the best advice I've been given was to aim higher. Um, Think bigger, aim higher. Uh, when you're writing your book, interview, you know, say to yourself, who would I be thrilled to interview for my book? Um, when you're thinking about uh, who your clients should be, say, who would I be thrilled to have as clients? And then to focus in on that, um, you know, there's sort of a cliche, like, uh, if you, you know, shoot for the stars, and if you miss, you'll still hit the moon or something. It's that kind of a, of a mindset mm-hmm. to, to be bold. And, and that's been something that, you know, I try to encourage other people, especially other women, but, but, but all all uh, entrepreneurs, I think, um, if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna be brave and do something on your own, you might as well aim for what you really want.
1: That's great. I can relate to that. That's why I call the show my quest for the best, not my quest for the mediocre.
0: Right. that's, that's it's a much catchier title too. I don't I don't know if people have listened to my quest for the mediocre. <laughs> my quest for the pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's a great it's a great podcast, and it's like, I love the title.
1: So. As you consult with different executives and entrepreneurs and give your presentations to corporations and associations around the country, what would you say is one of the biggest misconceptions or mistakes that business leaders are making right now in regards to the membership economy? And what do you suggest people do about it?
0: I think the biggest mistakes people are making, especially small business owners, with with respect to the membership economy, is trying to just do the tactics without understanding the philosophy and having a mess so for example you say we're going to make our business a membership business and we're going to charge a subscription but the the value doesn't align with a subscription so for example this is a silly example but somebody asked me she said she was an expert on potty training kids and she wanted to sell an annual subscription. And if you have kids, it doesn't take a year to potty train your kids. It takes a few months or a few weeks. So, you know, the model didn't fit the offer. Um, the, the model, you know, it's a, it's a very finite time period. Um, another thing that they do is, you know, everybody wants to have a subscription box now. And um, a lot of people fancy themselves as great curators of content or of you know whether it's you know I can pick the nicest ties for your business suit, or um, I can pick the best snacks or the best cigars, or I can pick the best articles, business articles. Um, people overestimate the value of curation. So, you know Amazon can curate books. They have a um, a book box subscription now for kids, um, and they you get a twenty percent discount. So you're getting curated books by a professional book buyer, but you're also getting a discount and it's also through Amazon where most people already have an account how in the world can a solopreneur doing a book box ever compete with that so i think that sometimes mm-hmm. you know not ha- like the value is just not and they're like well i'm going to have these great books but i have to buy the books at retail and then i have to charge a premium for my curation it's just not the value is not there for the for the subscriber I think those are the biggest issues right now that I see is kind of having a model because you want to have the model, but not really thinking through the value for the customer or not being honest about the competition that you're, what you're offering is not as differentiated as you think it is Mm. or having a subscription, but not treating the customer. Well, um, in, in any subscription business, you really are depending on the customer staying forever. And if you don't treat them well, if you, do something for short-term revenue that doesn't align with the member's long-term mission, they're going to cancel. And then the company might end up losing money. Um, so like Blue Apron's an example of that. Um, the the, the offer to, itself yeah. didn't last forever. And so people were canceling after, you know, five or six months when they got tired of the food and Blue Apron was offering these very generous free trials. So they were actually losing money we're making a very, very, very tiny profit on each customer. And um, that's not a sustainable model.
1: Right. You need to have a certain number of people subscribe in order to make it worthwhile at a subscription level. And you have to make sure that they're sticking for a certain period of time in order to make it profitable. Right?
0: Yes. And you don't, I mean, if you don't know that they're going to stay, don't bother acquiring them. And I think that's another mistake, right? You focus so much on acquisition and you don't think through the retention part. And then what ends up happening is Mm. you have, you can kind of get into this hamster wheel of, well, we got to acquire more people because people are going out the back door. And instead, if you stopped for a minute and said, okay, let's figure out why everybody's leaving and fix it, right? Then first of all, people coming in the front door are going to be more profitable. Second of all, they're going to tell their friends, this is great, come join us. So that, that, those are all, those are some of the the issues with, with, and and it's, you know, membership economy right now is such a hot topic. Lots of people want to do it, but not all of them take the time to really understand it before they invest.
1: It is. It's, it's pretty easy. It's kind of like chess. It's pretty easy to understand, but it's really complex to pull off successfully and at scale. Well, Robbie, I, I want to thank you for sharing your insights on the membership economy with us. I mean, you've taken us through, (laughs) it's a lot of fun. And you've shared so many great ideas with us that help us understand it in more depth. Being able to understand about, you know, how networking led to an important connection at Netflix that led to you falling in love with the business model and becoming a a well-known expert on the membership economy who consults and speaks to groups all over now. You shared with us ideas about how you have to structure it, a membership offering as if your sister or someone you cared the most about in the world were your customer. What a great thought exercise. And we talked about recognizing bad prospects, the importance of making sure that there's an effective customer lifetime value to make it worthwhile. And then the analysis of Tony Robbins' business for any thought leader who's looking to build a subscription model around it. And then asking yourself those questions about if you were to do something and do something really important. How could you do it so that you have clarity, you establish there's a clear need for it, you're credible in the market, and you can take first steps with it? You know, you've shared so many great ideas with us, Robbie, on the membership economy and more about your own career. What parting thoughts do you wanna leave people with now? And then we'll find out more about how to connect with you uh, in order to find out more about the the work that you do.
0: Everybody who's listening, if you value your relationship with your customers and if having a long-term relationship with them would drive greater revenue, greater profits, you know, greater success for your business, take a step back today and think about who your best customers are and who your worst customers are. And then think about what you can do to bring in more best customers and make your experience a better fit for them for the long term. If you do that exercise, it'll take you a couple of hours. Um, you'll see all kinds of potential to build a much more powerful business model that actually will lead, I hope, and I think to more joy in your work.
1: I just want to tag onto that something that I read in your forward by Alan Blue, and he's a co-founder of LinkedIn and he just started off his forward with two words, belonging matters. And I just love that as an introduction to the membership economy. Robbie, how can people find out more about you, um, bringing you in to speak, learning about the courses that you offer? Where should people go online to do that?
0: Uh, Membershipeconomy.com is uh, the book website or uh, peninsula com is my consulting firm. I'm very easy to find if you type in membership economy or Robbie Baxter, uh, you'll you'll find me. And uh, I, you know, would be glad to talk to you about consulting, um, about speaking or about helping you in any way, honestly, that I can. Any friend of any friend of Bill Ringles is a friend of mine.
1: <laughs> thank you. And thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best.
0: It's been a pleasure.
1: Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.